The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In our last episode, we looked at the life and a few of the poems of Matsuo Basho, haiku's greatest master. We also looked at pseudo-haiku and discharged a lot of our hatred for the, all. Uh, let's call it the use and abuse of the haiku form. But hatred does not do me any good, people. I'm trying to love wherever I can these days. And so I luckily found a kind of lightning rod to draw that hatred from stormy skies and drain it into the harmless ground where it just becomes absorbed energy, I guess. I don't know know exactly what it does down there, but it's better than burning down my house. So all you syllable counters out there, you're not there to be hated, you're there to be loved. You're not hurting anyone, but you're also being loved because we have decided that you're basically harmless, not because your pseudo-haiku is great or even particularly worthwhile. It's better than burning down a house. (laughs) You can say that about your endeavor. We will save our passionate intensity for the greatest haiku. We'll devote our attention to that. Instead, we'll linger over those gem-like little poems because of what they will do for us. I've chosen a whole lot of Basho's greatest poems and organized them into a few themes which we will present like a multi-course meal, small plates brought out in succession, designed to suit your palate. A feast of haiku, today, on the History of Literature. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson, your host and lover extraordinaire. I don't mean your lover, and I don't mean womanizer, God forbid, or rogue, or cad, or anything like that. I mean trying to live my life with love in my heart, love governing my actions, love suffusing my thoughts. How is it going, you might ask? Here I am, week one of my new project, to love more. Well, my neck hurts. (laughs) That might be unrelated. Hopefully so. As I talked about last time, I used to hate the way people used the haiku form. It's not the the beautiful positioning of humans within nature, an individual mind contemplating or intuiting something essential about his or her surroundings, especially when they're timeless but beautiful and often unnoticed, like the reflection on a pond or a smell, or a sound, or a feeling that steals over you and shivers your spine, or brings tears to your eyes, or joy to your heart. Instead, in pseudo-haiku, we get drivel, doggerel, dumb thoughts, disguised as haiku, taking the familiar 575 and abusing it, wearing the haiku form proudly, like an invader who's broken into our house and roped us to the chair and is now trying on our favorite clothes and dancing around, dancing and prancing and mocking us. Yikes, that's a little vivid, but I don't care. It fits. I hate pseudo-haiku, but I'm trying not to hate so much. And so I took some comfort in the words of Basho, who himself had a similar reaction to the haiku of his day. The haiku as it was being practiced before he cleaned it up and elevated it. After Basho, gone were the 
the look at me clevernesses banished to the basement. And in the main house, or maybe I should say in the tower, up there in the tower in his lofty ranks, maybe I should say in the garden, where the grown-ups were sitting in awed silence, revering the world. That's where we saw Basho's haikus, the, the haiku worthy of the name. Ones that could lift the heart, engage the mind, and deepen the soul. These aren't limericks or puns or little parlor tricks. These are stripped-down poetry. Mmm, bare, essential, beautiful. As simple as an exhalation, as intricate and ornate as a piece of china, as elegant as the colors on a painting by an old master, or the fine threads of a tapestry. As substantive as a single bite of a gorgeous piece of food, a morsel, maybe enough for a meal, if we aren't trying to be gluttons about it. Do you ever just take a smaller plate or bowl out of the cupboard and fill that and eat and realize that, hey, that was all you needed? That's good dieting. That's haiku. Here's an even better example. Ever go to a grocery store, hungry, and you fill your cart with all kinds of junk, and that junk comes home and lines your shelves and eventually goes into your body? Now, alternative approach. Go to the grocery store, not hungry. Only fill that. Your, your shopping behavior is different, isn't it? You only fill your cart with the purest of foods. You can limit yourself there. Protein, some limited carbohydrates, fruits and vegetables, real food. Or as Michael Pollan calls it, food. Not the junk. Hey, I'm a junk. <laughs> I get the pleasures of junk food. I love a good Cheeto as much as the next guy. In Italy, I scarfed down Fonzies like nobody's business. Although that was kind of because the kids and I laughed every time we said the name. But I know the value of eating rich and nutritious food. It's like solar energy instead of burning oily sludge. There's a difference to the electrons when they're clean and efficient. They're better. You're better. And in the case of haiku, the poems are better too. Omit needless words. Emphasize what's important. Let the poem's essence shine forth unencumbered, unhidden. Basho himself said, quote, In composing a poem, there are two ways. One is a natural way in which a poem is born from within itself. The other is to make it artificially, only with technique. End quote. If you're counting syllables, tapping your fingers on the table as you write words to fit your predetermined scheme, you're doing it wrong. Your haiku should come from a deep sense of feeling. That flash of insight you must capture. What is it about that moment that seems so pregnant with life and meaning? What did you feel? Joy? Nostalgia, excitement, fatigue, a combination of the above. What elements went into giving you that feeling? Maybe not everything. Maybe not 20 elements or 18 or 15. Maybe those are all in your mind. Maybe you know that it was all of those things combined. But how are you going to convey it? 
to your reader in two or maybe three, maybe four? What's essential to that feeling? And can those elements that you've chosen convey that feeling to someone else? That's the business, the exercise that a haiku practitioner is in. Leave the syllable counting to the second graders. Okay, enough of that. Here's what we're going to do today. I've picked a batch of my favorite haiku by Basho, the great master of Japanese haiku. We'll see if the great walker can walk the walk when it comes to delivering the goods. How many? <laughs> the parade of cliches. <laughs> these are, these haiku are in the, I'm firing another intern. <laughs> Who writes this stuff? These are in the Toshiharu Osiko translations, by the way. He has some notes as well, which I've drawn upon. Can't remember if I quote anything. We'll see. I've drawn upon them in preparing my thoughts. I'll be giving some of my own thoughts with some of these. We will start all of this, our delivery of the haiku and our discussion of them after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. First things first, we won't go through the three or four haiku we talked about last time. The one with the crow, the white chrysanthemum, Basho's final poem, and the most famous one, the frog in the old pond and the sound of water. Don't worry, there are plenty more. I'll provide some commentary, which you might think my commentary interferes with a haiku, and I sort of thought that too. I wondered, maybe I should just read these. Maybe I should just let them stand alone, like the sound of a church bell ringing on a cold winter night in an empty village. Maybe it's Christmas Eve. Maybe the haiku should resonate like that, too. But Basho provided commentary at times, and I think it's okay. I think we're allowed. I'm also not. I'm also uh, conflicted about reading too many haiku in a row. That's the other consideration. I didn't. I don't know if reading. 25 or 30 or 40 haiku in a row is really the way to go here either. I don't know if there's a perfect way to read them. I'm, if you're asking my advice, well, Jax, let's say I want to go read some Basho. How should I go about it? Should I read one per day and reflect? That has some arguments for it, but mainly 
The arguments for it is they're so rich and deserve some of their own space and time and energy. And if you read too many in a row, sometimes they can start to seem a little trivial, a little repetitive. They feel like a trick, like, oh, I see. You just describe something and slap twilight or crack of dawn or autumn or the moon onto it, and you get this effect. Okay, I got it. It's a pattern. It's a template. We're cutting haiku cookies, aren't we? That's the feeling I sometimes get if I read too many in a row too quickly. Basho himself felt that way too at times, as we will see. And we've had hundreds of years and countless followers since him. A lot of haiku to absorb into our cultural body. And yet, so that would argue in favor of just spending a little time. Maybe reading one in the morning when you wake up. Or as you read your morning coffee, reflect on it. But... I have found that that's not the best way to imbibe haiku, at least for me. When I read one, only one, I'm not always in the proper mood. It usually takes me a few to start to relax, to start to fall into the pattern. It'd be like doing yoga for one second. That's not enough time to do yoga. I need to fall into the haiku a little bit. More than one it usually takes. When there's an exclamation mark, a bit of excitement, it almost never hits me the right way when I've only read one. After I've read three or four, I start to go into a zone, a trance, maybe a reframing of the world, and then I start to appreciate the silences and the stillnesses and the simple pleasures and the small miracles and the boundless enthusiasm coming out of these brief Glimpses of eternity. It is then that I feel like I can shake hands with a master like Basho across the centuries. And when the haiku is truly transcendent, it is then, in that proper frame of mind, that I feel like I can see the soft smile and hear the quiet whispers of God. Okay. Let's hear a few of these and see how it goes. I can tell you that I started choosing my favorites. I thought I'd I'd take 10. I'll make a top 10. But how to select 10 out of this rich body of work? So I I tried a dozen (laughs) or maybe a, a baker's dozen, a basho's dozen. Still not easy. So I made a long list, which I thought I would use to make a short list. And I started highlighting some of my favorite. My long list was over 100 poems. And then I thought, you know what, I'd better break this into some themes and categories and give you more than a dozen. This isn't greatest hits. It's more like a general description of common themes that you'll find in Bosch. I don't know why I'm explaining all this. People, good people of the history of literature community, we are going to conquer this haiku mountain and do it all with love in our hearts. I feel a little lucky to be alive. Hopefully this project doesn't kill me. I have no idea why I just said that. Maybe maybe endings always make me think that a little bit. And maybe when I launch into these episodes with no real plan, I'm, I get anxious about endings, wondering how things will turn out. Luckily, Haiku is here to remind me the ending is far off and will be what it is. The past is far off too, and it is what it is. Here we have the moment. 
I don't have to think about the rest of this episode where it's headed. I can zero in on the first topic I want to discuss, which is who is our speaker in this poem? If you read hundreds of Basho's haiku, what emerges? He himself was a teacher, which he kind of gave up, but he was celebrated enough as a teacher and as a poet to be a welcomed guest at temples and homes all over Japan. And he reduced his possessions and he traveled, spent years on the road. And so I feel a great commonality with him in that regard, even though I've never been to Japan but I've traveled. I've traveled through China and Tibet and Nepal and India, through America, of course, sometimes on great road trips, but sometimes on foot. I've walked through Scotland and England and Ireland and Italy and Spain and Morocco, the Philippines, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Thailand, other places too. I don't know, another 10 or 20 countries, I suppose. But the countries might not matter so much. I should have said I've been in forests and I've seen lakes and ponds and waterfalls and rivers. I've watched sunsets from the beach and sunrises, too. I felt the sand under my bare feet and, and watched frogs hopping about and seen dragonflies coasting above the riverbed, the r- river surface. I've felt the frozen road at night under the soles of my boots. I've been alone and exhausted. I've been lonely. I've been warmed by good company. I've laughed and I've cried. But this is not really about me, is it? It's about Basho. But this is how to read Basho. I've never been to Japan, and sometimes he'll mention a place or a temple, and I'll have to read a little about it to know that it's especially old or that it's near the mouth of a river or that it's halfway up a mountain or it's famous for a certain kind of tea or something, and that helps. But that doesn't mean I can only participate if I've been to that exact place and seen that exact thing. I've seen rivers rushing. I've enjoyed the taste and texture and temperature of tea. I've been weary. I've felt lazy. I've felt excited. I've seen caterpillars curling themselves into a question mark as they reach toward the sky. You have too, I am sure. But who was Basho? Who is he in these poems? So our first category is a traveler. And we will start with haiku, where the traveler talks about travel, about life on the road, about being an itinerant poet. Traveler is the name I would like to be called, Basho says in one haiku, the first winter shower. That's that's how he concluded it. That's very Basho. Traveler is the name I would like to be called, the first winter shower. He'll say things like this one. How harsh it sounds, the pattering of hail on my cypress hat. And another year is gone, still wearing my travel hat and straw sandals. And burning dried pine needles, I dry my wet towel over the fire. What bitter coldness. See the picture we're getting? This is a poet who's on the move with that beautiful little hail on his cypress hat. It sounds harsh, that pattering. When you're inside a cypress hat, it does. Another year is gone. There he still is. Here's one with a real poetic touch. A flash of insight 
almost like a painter here. We'll see a lot of painterly uh, haiku coming up. Here's one with a flash of insight that I like. In the winter sun, frozen stiff on horseback, just like a shadow. Hmm. Have you felt that way? Like you've been attached to nature? The way a shadow is attached to its object? Our traveler has reduced his possessions. He says in this one, With only one item in possession, my life is light. The gourd of rice. Hmm. I never quite got down that far. That's Gandhi-like. To go down to one item in possession. Gandhi, what do you have? A bowl? And a pair of glasses. I think that was it. Basho apparently didn't need the spectacles. All he needed was the bowl or the gourd of rice. Sometimes our traveler takes it all in, as in this one. The bright full moon, I kept walking round the pond all night through. Mm. Have you felt that way, dear listener? He meets up with others. He says, People in the market, I will sell you this hat of mine, decorated with snow. And the travel makes him feel good. I feel higher than a lark in the sky as I rest in the mountain pass. Hmm, I have definitely felt that way. And grateful. Often he feels gratitude. For this one, it helps to know that Minami Dani is a temple halfway up a mountain. He says, How grateful I am to breathe the holy air, snow-scented, at Minami Dani. Boy, that's snow-scented. Could spend a lot of time on that phrase. Lingering. Breathing in snow-scented, holy air. Hmm, love it. Not everything about travel is wonderful, though. Here's one. Drinking medicine on a journey is sad. Sadder still on a pillow of frost. So true. When you get sick, when you're traveling, it's the worst. It happened to me on my honeymoon in Alaska, of all places, and of all times. And of course, I had that food poisoning incident in Tibet that almost killed me. I think I told you about that one a few shows ago. It's never fun to be sick. But when you're traveling and the conditions are not good, you're on a pillow of frost. Talk about cold. You feel alone and abandoned and you struggle to just let time heal in poor conditions. Okay. Here's another one on the pains of travel. Plagued by fleas and lice, still worse, hearing the horse pissing close to my pillow. <laughs> Could have put that one in the playful Basho section, but it's also very much about traveling. What we get, even in spite of these uh, harshnesses of travel, we get this beautiful spirit, this joy of existence coming through the experience of travel. Traveling, these, this is a cliche, but it's true. Traveling lets us see the world afresh. Lets us see both our new and our old worlds 
with fresh eyes. When we see things in repetition, they become invisible to us. Breaks in the pattern are what stand out. Our brains are wired this way. And if you're alive and open to possibilities, okay, look, you can have the mind and attitude of a traveler and see things like this just in your own everyday humdrum life. There's enough in the world to be excited about without traveling, but traveling serves it up on a platter. I like poems about the harshness of travel, but I truly love poems like this one. I don't mind if my paper robe gets wet as I snap a spray of blossoms in the rain. Have you ever done that or something like it when you're outside and it starts to rain? Your first thought is always, oh, shoot, rain. I'm out here. I'm going to get wet. No umbrella. It's a negative. Raindrops on my head and clothes and skin. It's awful. A character flaw on my part. I'm not prepared. I was caught off guard, exposed. But have you ever, that's the common feeling, right? The first feeling, first thought. But have you ever shifted that feeling to say, good Lord, these raindrops feel good. What a miracle to be out here feeling so great under this crazy shower, water coming from the sky. I'll be wet for a while, but I'm wet every day anyway. I take showers and dry off, right? I get dry eventually. While I'm here and the rain is coming down, why not just smile, look up at the sky, and celebrate? Feel the rain on my face. It feels good. It feels real, and I'm alive, and that's wonderful. And if you're snapping a spray of blossoms... Or maybe you're noticing the bark on an old tree or watching a squirrel dart around in the backyard. If you're enjoying it before the rain, you can enjoy it during the rain too. Why not? Your things and you will dry. That one's not necessarily about travel, but it's close in spirit. Here's one that is kind of like this, but it is about travel. Tired from the journey, I arrive at my lodgings. Wisteria flowers! Exclamation mark. I love that one too. Basho isn't some crazy Jack Wilson type who's determined to have love in his heart and he's ramming his way through the world with desperate happiness like some kind of hamster in the wheel, some kind of twitchy love junkie. He gets tired and exhausted. I was kidding about Jack Wilson. He gets tired too. And when you arrive, when Basho arrives tired and exhausted, you get to your lodgings. Wisteria flowers! Exclamation mark. Oh, haven't you done that? You've on some long car trip. Oh, construction plus an accident on the road. And it takes hours and hours to get where you're trying to go. It's a nightmare. Everyone's in a foul mood. You're tired. Or maybe you're not even in a car. You're walking somewhere. You're hauling luggage, dragging it across the the ground. It's hot. You're sticky. It's all unpleasant. And then you arrive at your friend's house or your hotel room. And it's, oh, the air conditioning feels good. Or, oh, look, there's a view of the sunset out our window. 
But in the old days, oh, hey, they've got HBO here. Or, whoa, look at that swimming pool. How pretty. I can't wait to go splash around. Or if you're as attuned to the universe as Basho, wisteria flowers. Ah, oh, reminds me of Europe when I haul myself into the hotel or the bed and breakfast. Oh, apricot jam. <laughs> How nice. This little thing, this little pot. Tiny little pot just for me of apricot jam. I need to notice plants and flowers more. Cypress trees, I like those. I pull into a farmhouse in Italy, tired, exhausted, and there's two cypress trees framing the house. Fantastic. I'm here, I'm home, or at least home for now. My lodgings, which is okay. It's still home, temporary home. I'm here. Cypress trees, exclamation mark. Now, there's also a feeling with travel that you can get burned out. You can get burned out from these experiences. Too much travel that starts to blur together. You can feel like you need home, real home. As Basho says, traveling all my life is just like plowing a patch of paddy field back and forth. Recognize that feeling too. There are three poems I want to end with in this category. They give you a sense of Basho, our guide, our traveling companion, if you will. All good novelists know that voice is crucial to the success of a book. You have to, you, you need the reader to want to hear the speaker, spend some time with him. And hey, guess what? Here's the kind of guy I like spending some time with. Here's one I love. Taking off one garment, I have thrown it over my shoulder. Clothes changing day. <laughs> Yay! It's clothes changing day. Don't take days like that for granted just because you live in a time and place where you probably change clothes a lot. When traveling with a backpack, as I did for a couple of years, you don't take showers every day necessarily. And who cares? Your horse doesn't. Not your fellow companions. They're doing the same thing. I was in a village once. We'll call it a village. It was a collection of huts, probably. Ten people lived there, maybe 20 at the most. And I asked them about taking a shower. Is there a shower? Is there a shower here somewhere? For reasons I won't go into, I was there for a week. And they said, you know what? You can wash your hair in that stream down there. Just walk down that little hill a ways. There's a, a cold stream. It's clean. You can wash your hair there. I said, oh, okay, will do. And then they said, you know what? Wait until the afternoon when the ice in the stream thaws. It's easier. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going to argue with that. It's easier to wash your hair with water than with ice. Wasn't too easy with barely thawed water either, frankly, but I did it. I plunged my head into the water a few times. I washed up. I felt a, a kind of numb encircling of my skull as if it were in a vice. <laughs> a vice made of ice. Ice vice. Like I suppose they have at the Fortress of Solitude. Maybe that's how Superman makes stuff. I'm kidding. It did feel like I was just being squeezed all around the head. But it also felt great. I was warm soon enough, very clean, very refreshed. As refreshed as I've ever felt, probably. Hair rinsing day! Exclamation mark. Basho, you missed it. But then again, I missed your clothes changing day. 
exclamation mark. So I guess we're even. Okay, two more in this category. Here's one that I think could almost be in one of our future categories, which is the world is a painting. But I think of it as a traveler poem too. This road, no one goes along it. An autumn evening. Can't you just see that road and feel the emptiness and be there with him regarding it? My sister and I both live in cities now, but we're from the same small town, of course, and my parents still live there, and she goes for walks whenever she's home. And once she said to me on the phone, when's the last time you've gone for a walk there at night? There's nobody there. There's nobody on the streets. And I've felt that in autumn, too, especially when you you leave that little town and get out into the country. Wow, there are really, there's really nothing on those roads. No cars, no people, just you and the night lit up by stars and the moon. Autumn and an empty road. It's kind of magical. Which brings me to my very favorite poem in this category of poems about traveling. Dozing on horseback, half dreaming, the moon far away, the smoke for morning tea. Ah, oh, that, ah, oh, that's just the best. I almost don't want to describe it or say anything about it because I'd rather just let it stand for itself. It puts Basho in his time and in his place. It's specific and universal both, and it's so wonderful. It's working at so many levels. I'll just read it again. Dozing on horseback, half dreaming, the moon far away, the smoke for morning tea. Ah, I just got chills. That's why we still read Basho poems like that one. Let's take our last break and see what Basho does when he meets other people, when he sees animals. We'll see his playful side and more. Okay, we are back. We met Basho, our traveler, our poet, and we've seen already with his wisteria flowers and his walks around the pond in the moonlight, how much he reveres nature. As we saw in haiku in general, in our definition, remember the American Society of, of Poetry, of Haiku, I guess it was, or the Haiku Society of America. I can never remember the title. This was in the last episode. We saw how they defined haiku as something, as a poem that would yoke together a season or nature with a flash of insight into the human condition. Sometimes that last part is implied, and sometimes it's explicit. Basho is not the first poet to do this, of course. There's a famous poem by Li Bai. Basho loved Li Bai, by the way. Li Bai was writing years before Basho, and you really need to see the Chinese characters to understand how this poem works on many levels. There's a visual component to the language as well, but let's just use the English translation for now, and we'll see the move that Basho also employs hundreds of years later after Levi. Levi's poem, this one is so famous. It's called, in some translations, Quiet Night Thought or Reflections in the Evening. That kind of, that's the kind of title it usually gets. Here it is. Before my bed, there's a pool of light. I wonder if it's frost on the ground. Looking up, 
I see the bright moon. I bow my head and think of home. So simple in thought, but so vivid and unforgettable. This moment where something in nature, something every day, nothing special about the bright moon or a pool of light on the ground. It's available to everyone. It's not like a trip to the Grand Canyon or something. It's not like a, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Something available to everyone, but look who it's available to in this case. Someone who's not home. Someone who's traveling. Someone who's nostalgic. Someone who's sensitive enough to recognize the moment and let us know what it did to his mind at that time. Hmm. Very recognizable. Basho has lots of poems like this. Let's hear a few. The banana tree is blasted in the storm. I listen all night to the leaking raindrops in a basin. And from my pillow on a journey, I hear the barking of a dog in the wintry shower of night. And this one, which is probably my favorite in this subcategory. The sound of oars beating waves chills me to the marrow. Tears flow deep night. Melancholy that comes from Levi as well. It's a wonderful tone for a poem to adopt, but often what, what Basho gives us is unaffected joy, like this one. Actually, I've got four here. Ready? On the mountain road, I have found something lovely. A wild violet! Exclamation mark. Here's another one. What quietness penetrating the rocks, the voices of cicadas. What kind of tree is in flower? I have no idea, but how fragrant it is. And then this one, the fourth, which is slightly different. In the summer rain, a floating grebe's nest tempts me to look at it. Notice in that, in that last one how we have the traveler enjoying the rain, especially a summer rain. And yet, here we are. Nature is so compelling. It's impossible to ignore. It tempts us. Instead of hurrying to get out of the rain, we stop. Take a look at a floating grebe's nest. The category we're in is a traveler responding to nature. Here's one. Mushroom gathering, almost caught by a cold evening shower. Hmm. Sometimes nature is only a reminder of what you don't have. I felt that in Thailand. Oh, sure, sunset, you're beautiful, but I've been doing this every single day, watching you. And I kind of miss watching movies, too. I miss, I miss air conditioning. I miss driving on the interstate. I miss my friends. Here's Basho, already there, hundreds of years before me. Morning glories. These are not my friends either. <laughs> what a dark little twist that one has. When nature turns on Basho, Basho of all people, for whom morning glories should be sufficient. Well, and you see just 
how cruel the world can be and how fickle humans are sometimes. Okay. Our next two categories are also kind of about nature. And look, Basho himself got a little tired of this. He saw himself clearly and his poetry. It's a little too easy sometimes, isn't it? It's like haiku med libs, blah, blah, blah. Autumn night, sound of X or smell of Y. Poem. And who cares? What good does it do me or the world? Here's one he wrote early in his life, early in his writing career. Saying the moon and snow idled away in arrogance till the end of the year. And years later, later in his life, he wrote, My stupidity in repeating the moon and flowers should be pricked with a needle as we enter the coldest season. There he goes. He's doing it in the poem where he talks about the stupidity of it. He can't help adding the coldest season to give us a flavor. That little extra. He makes it a haiku he's, even as he's almost objecting to the whole concept of haiku by saying it's he's been stupidly repeating the moon and flowers. Okay, you might be thinking, okay, I want to write poems, but nature is all used up, isn't it? Basho and his heirs have already covered that territory in any way. Nature's not my thing, Jack Wilson. Well, maybe that's true. Maybe your thing is the periodic table of elements, or maybe it's car engines, or gambling. Maybe it's imaginary numbers. No one says nature is the only or the best subject for a poem. You can write your poems about anything, about Marvel movies, or masturbation, or memory loss. But there's something beautiful Look, I've got some pictures hanging on my wall. Guess what they're of? They're not pictures of Marvel movies or masturbation, God forbid. I don't know why I use that. It starts with an M. Memory loss, no pictures of that. I've got pictures of mountains. One with a Swiss chalet, one of my beloved Mount Kailas in Tibet, and one of a, a Japanese, actually a couple with Japanese mountains. I have photos of the beach I have a photo of a city in Italy. I'm looking around my office now. We've got John Lennon and Paul McCartney. It's a little strange, but there we go. Also, ah, uh, Bologna with hills in the background. Those are the places that soothe the soul. Flowers, birds, the moon. These are universal for us. Green grass, blue sky. We are hardwired to appreciate them. They affect us, all of us, in different ways and to different degrees, but they are worthy, worthy subjects. Okay. Clouds, come on. Beautiful. Let's see how Basho presents nature for us. I have this in two categories. The world is a painting, and second category, the paintings move. Some of his presentations remind me of a framed painting with two or three concepts he sketches out what the painting would look like. Here's one. It is already spring. Nameless mountains are covered with soft morning mist. Can't you see that in a painting? Not a famous mountain. Nameless mountains. You look around. Have you been in landscapes like this? If not, you can see them in paintings. They're everywhere. Don't you want to see it for yourself? For real? 
but a painting is good too. And reading a haiku and thinking about it, helping you to see it in your mind's eye will help you recall those moments if you've had them and will get you to get you ready to appreciate the next time a moment like that comes around. And you're lucky enough to feel like it's already spring and that nameless mountains are covered with soft morning mist. Mm, this is so good for the soul. Okay, next one. Under the bright harvest moon, fog at the foot of the mountains, mist over the paddy fields. If you can't picture that as a painting, then I don't know what to tell you. There it is. That's all you need. That's all you need to just, it's so inviting. I want to be there. I want to be, I want to be inside this haiku. Okay. I'll give you uh, a few of these in a row to let you get a sense of them. If you're actually reading these in a collection, these, these uh, haiku as paintings, they actually stand out a little more because they'll be interspersed with other types of poems, the ones where the traveler's a little chattier or describe some people or some thoughts, and that's probably the best way to take them in. These little moments that stand alone, just the image and we said before, remember the definition of haiku, that there had to be an image, something of nature, a season, something like that, and yoked together with an insight of a person. Well, often the person is implied in some of these. In that sense, these haiku as a painting might be the purest haiku. They're the most reduced. We heard in Li Bai, Li Bai seems wordy in his four lines with his I wonder if, and looking up, I see the moon, I wonder if it's frost. We, we feel Basho's reverence for these things. His speaker is there even if he's not. He doesn't say, I think, or this makes me think of home. He says that sometimes. But in a poem like, Under the bright harvest moon, fog at the foot of the mountains, mist over the paddy fields, he's trusting us to supply the emotion and the resonance of that. He's just presenting how it looks, not like a photograph, but through the mind of a painter, like an impressionist maybe, or a Van Gogh or someone like that. It's Basho's view, but it's presented without Basho saying, I turned and looked and saw. You see the difference? Okay, here's another one. A misty cold shower of late autumn renders the scenery without Mount Fuji more attractive. The pine of Karasaki looks hazier in the distance than the cherry blossoms. And another one with cherry blossoms. The roof of the Cannon Temple is seen far away in the clouds of cherry blossoms. I love these. I love the feeling that simply seeing something beautiful, simply noticing it, can be worthy of our attention, and that you can call our attention to it without calling attention to anything else, including the speaker and how tired he is or how much this makes him think of this or that. It's just nature presented in words, painting in words. Okay, here's one. One ridge is covered with a dark cloud, perhaps of winter rain. Snow on Mount Fuji. 
In the heavy rain of early summer, all is hidden but the Sita Bridge. Can't you see that painting? The Sita Bridge. Haven't you been in a position like that where you're looking out through heavy rain? Maybe you're looking out through the car window and you think, what is this? It's so heavy. It's like it's darkness. But I see that. What is that I see? Oh, it's a bridge. Yes, I see the bridge, the horizontal crossing that all that vertical rain coming down, those dark lines. Okay, last one here. Over the withered grass, the warm air shimmers for just a few inches. That one's not quite a painting in my mind, but it is definitely an observation like that with no speaker in the way Basho was, as Saul Bellow might have put it, a first-class noticer. My next category is called The Painting Moves. Again, these aren't the traveler thinking of home or how cold he is or how tired. He's simply giving us nature. There's a little more than a painting. At least there's movement. It's not static like a painting. That's why I gave this its own little category. I guess a good painting can convey motion and movement too, and certainly a film could, but nature does it for us all the time. And Basho is there to notice. In quiet succession, the yellow flowers of Caria fall to the sound of the waterfall. I see that waterfall and those yellow flowers. <laughs> Here's another. The clouds and fog make the scenery change fast in a hundred ways. The moon seems to be moving fast with the scudding clouds, treetops still holding the rain. The withering wind disappearing into the bamboos has calmed it down. The bright harvest moon coming right up to my gate, the foamy crests of flood tide. This one we hear in a commentary was at a temple located near the mouth of one river and facing another river on the southern side of the temple. He sees the foamy crests of flood tide coming right up to his gate. Okay, so keep in mind that I'm selecting these over a 10-plus year career of writing, 15 years or so of writing poems. So a lot of these, this will be the only one like this from that year or from that two-year period or three-year period. So it's not as if he's writing uh, five of the, the five I just read to you are not uh, poems he wrote five days in a row or five on one day. These are spread out. Helps to have a little bit of perspective if they seem like they're covering the same territory. Okay. The last two in this category are going to transition us into the next. Cranes seen walking in the half-harvested paddy fields. Autumn in the village. And a flash of lightning flying into the darkness, the voice of the night heron. Okay, if you've guessed our next category, 
has a lot of these animals, birds and fish especially, and insects. I didn't find any any mammals, I don't think. Certainly not any large mammals. I didn't find, well, I guess a horse. There we go. But I didn't find any uh, uh, animals in Basho. There aren't uh, tigers or dragons. No imaginary animals that I saw when I was going through Basho's poetry. Insects, did I mention that? I've called the this category the miracle of existence because the prevailing sentiment here is appreciation for these little miracles of life all around us all the time. I think I added a few flowers in here too, but most of these are animals. Okay. Fish and fowl. Okay. In the half-light of dawn, an ice fish shows its shiny white just one inch long. Over the field, touching nothing, a skylark sings. How great is that one, by the way? <laughs> that bird, never really thought about that. How awesome is it that a bird is flying and singing at the same time? <laughs> There's a real kind of joy in that, right? Not just a way to kill time sitting on a branch, like, hey, look at me, everybody but soaring through the air, singing. That is a pretty good way to live. Okay. Dropping from a blade of grass, there flies up again, without touching the ground, a firefly. There is a small miracle there. Things like that happen every day all around you. But there it is. Perfect for us. A cuckoo is flying to disappear towards an island far away. So poignant, so moving. Okay. In the yellow patch of colza flowers, sparrows seem to admire them. The sea has darkened, and the voice of a wild duck is faintly white. Now you may be saying, how can a voice be white? How can it be faintly white? How can a sound be a color? Well, people, come on. You know. You've heard sounds. You've heard ducks. And you've heard ducks from far away when the sea has darkened. You know that they are faintly white. And if you didn't before, you do now. Basho has... Clued us in on that one. I've included a few flowers. I see I do have a couple here because these feel like they're more than just natural objects to me. They're living things, of course, living as much as they can. Not quite animals, but almost invested with emotions, especially in Basho's hands. Here we go. The first snowfall, just enough to bend down the leaves of the Narcissus. Especially I like this one. Starting to rise up, the chrysanthemum is seen faintly after the downpour. Ah, that triumphant chrysanthemum enduring the rain, rising for the sun, reaching, still faint, but alive, here, wondrous. Speaking of wonder, 
Our next category I've called Wondering About Others. Basha will often regard a fellow human being and try to get in his or her or their head. It's empathy that doesn't necessarily connect. Empathy that acknowledges we don't always know what's in someone else's heart. It's the empathy that Joyce's Gabriel shows at the end of his great short story masterpiece, The Dead. We've got, I think, three episodes on that story in the archives. Okay. Category wondering about others. What do they eat, the people in the small house in the autumn shade of willow? About the sad history of this temple, please tell me, dear yam digger. <laughs> I like that one. Sometimes our curiosity doesn't feel quite so needy. Sometimes we, we just appreciate the invisible thoughts. We appreciate what we do know, which is not what they're thinking, but that they're thinking, or we know what they're thinking, or we just admire the fact that they're out there in the world thinking their own thoughts, which is a little invisible to us, but we can kind of work our way into it. Okay, let me stop talking, getting in the way of these poems. Here we go. A poor farmer's child, pausing from hulling rice, looks up at the moon. And, across Hakone, there seem to be some travelers, even in this morning's snow. This one felt right to me to place it here, even if it's not quite the same as the others. A spring night, a pious prayer confined in a corner of the temple. Don't you feel that hushed reverence? The way that that echoes across the spring night and the way the spring night feeds into the pious prayer. Basho loved people, common people, common language, simple pleasures. He says, villagers singing while planting rice are as graceful as poets in the capital. He loved watching people do things. The water-drawing ceremony the sounds of monks' wooden clogs echo loud and icy. That loud and icy is incredible. It's like the white sound of the duck. Here's another one. Not only the moon, but also the rain spoiled the sumo wrestling matches. Feel like it's a getting these little glimpses of things the traveler did, things he observed, things events he was a witness to. All of that makes these poems. It's like you're reading a a travelogue, a travel diary, but doing it through these moments. It's probably more interesting than if we had a a chapter on sumo wrestling. That probably would be too much for me. But hearing that the sumo wrestling matches were spoiled, I'm supplying all of that emotion. It's all I need is his little hint of it. Okay. Everyone is out and grateful to cross the new bridge covered with frost. Exciting while watching, but soon after, sadness follows. The boats of cormorant fishing. Now, huh. Cormorant fishing, as the commentator, commentary by our translator tells us, was quite a... The cormorants were trained to catch the fish in their mouth. 
the fishermen would take the cormorant out, tie it up, put him in the water, and the cormorant would swallow smaller fish, and the then they would haul up the cormorants. They'd uh, push that. They'd uh, squeeze the necks, and so the fish would <laughs> be tied in such a way that the fish inside would be okay, and they would drop them into the boat. That's how they used cormorants for fishing, and they would do it at night. They had lights on the boats, and people would come out and watch because it was so interesting and exciting. But soon after, sadness follows, as things often do when we enjoy an event. Okay, the next one is a little bit odd. I've included it in this category because it's set at the market, although people are nowhere to be seen in this particular poem. Instead, the focus is all we're zoomed in on a fish that sits on maybe what I'm guessing is a pile of ice at the market. Okay. Salted sea breams, opened gums, look so cold at the fish shop. (laughs) And then there are some private moments. The little glimpses of people that you could almost imagine Basho witnessing in a kitchen after a hard day's work in spring or autumn, no doubt. The wife fanning the hot rice is the very best dish for him, the pleasure of the evening cool. And this one is maybe the most poignant of all. All the family, each with a stick and white hair, visiting the grave. Oh, is that heartbreaking? A grave of who? Of a revered elder, and they're still following the tradition, paying their respects, or is it someone younger? Everyone here is old. They all have a stick and white hair. It hardly matters, does it? It's a group of people visiting a grave, all the fam- all the family. All It's just them. And they're fading, too, honoring those who've passed, even as they themselves get ready to go. And who will honor them? They all have a stick and white hair. No one will be left, except our poet Basho, of course, and us and millions of readers over the past 400 years. Okay, the next category takes us away from nature and others and into the world of the poet. I've called it my feelings about my physical body as a category. Part of the joy and wonder of being alive is to have this kind of awareness and celebration of a body, whether it's the youthful power and energy of a young person or the aches and pains, someone getting older. I used to laugh. (laughs) Maybe I've told you this story before. My cousin told me that he read every novel John Updike ever wrote, which is a lot of words, a lot of pages. And a few years after he finished, he said, you know, I can only remember one thing from those books. There's a a part in one of the books where the character is urinating and he thinks it's just trickling out and I used to piss in a stream. And I I kind of chuckled along with my cousin. Jeez, how many novels did you read? 20, 30? There's nothing in them to remember other than that? One thing? That's all you took? But Basho kind of reminds us that these things like that are worthy of our notice and our attention. It's no wonder they're memorable. We often overlook them, but there's significance to these two. 
Here's a beautiful one. A shimmer of warm air rises up from the shoulders of my paper robe. And of course, feelings about the body often lead to feelings of mortality. A skeleton exposed in a field comes across my mind. A piercing cold wind blows. You can feel how cold that wind is. Piercing cold as if the flesh is not even around. It's not there. It's just wind on bone. Just as it would be for a skeleton. Here's another one for the cold traveler. I would like to borrow the kimono of a scarecrow. The frost of midnight. But here's a couple that celebrate the pleasure of cold or coolness. Making coolness my own lodging, I sit down in relaxation. My own lodging. I live in it. I reside in it. Who needs a house? You have warmth or coolness. It's a lot cheaper and it's just as good in some ways. If you can be that self-contained, maybe it's even better. Here's another one. What a pleasant cold touch. My feet against the wall, taking a midday nap. I've got this. Next one last. I think of it as a celebration of body and body in the world. In both hands, I have peach and cherry blossoms. Rice cake of mugwort, too. Hmm. What a bounty. Peach and cherry blossoms and rice cake of mugwort in both hands. All this. Look at all that. How lucky I am to be holding these things. Rice cake of mugwort. Sounds like something out of Harry Potter, but it's a, a revered snack. Apparently in Japan, we might say chocolate or ice cream or some other treat. For Basho, this was a rice cake of mugwort was especially known for this particular temple. He was excited to have it in his hands along with those peach and cherry blossoms. Okay, the next one I've called the play, next category I've called the playfulness of this world. Here's where Basho shows his flashes of humor or irony. Okay, the playfulness of this world. Make a fire, my friend. I will show you something good. A large snowball. That's pretty rich. It's a whole scene. It's cold outside. There are at least two people. One wants to show someone else, else something. They need a fire. It's a whole little story, not a narrative exactly. Doesn't have, really have a beginning, middle, and end. It's more of a, a narrative moment, a slice of time. This one, too. Another little story built into this one, although it involves a creature who is not human. How pitiful it is to hear a cricket chirping underneath the helmet. Here's a similar one. Crawl out to show your face from under the silkworm shed, my dear croaking toad. <laughs> here here he's, he's addressing a pepper. He says, you should have stayed green. Why have you changed your color, red pepper? <laughs> it's starting to seem a little ridiculous to me. Okay. <laughs> Let's edit that part out. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. No, leave it in. Here we go. Here's one. <laughs> it's honest. Here's one that's a little different. If I had a good voice, I would like to recite Cherry Blossoms Falling. Reciting was kind of like singing in those days, something you would do to perform, to, to please others. 
If I had a good voice, I would like to recite. It's a little somber, I guess, but I think of it as playful, a playful kind of feeling. The feeling that, well, you're not a good singer, but sometimes something makes you wish that you were. You go outside, the sun is shining, you see the blue sky, a few puffy clouds go by, and you think, damn, I wish I could play the guitar. I mean, really play it, really make that thing sing. Have you felt that way when you've seen something in nature? Here's a neat observation, something with a twist. Annual house cleaning, fixing a shelf of his own, the carpenter. And playful. This one is the most joyous in this category. Now, children, let's run about in the hailstones. Let's not be afraid of nature or be afraid of being childlike. This is the one for all those grandparents who get down on the floor to play board games with their grandkids. Or I guess these days it might be playing a video game with them. If you're a grandparent who will tackle NBA 2K or Call of Duty or something with your grandkids, bravo. Or at least Mario Kart. Why not? Life is short. Meet them on their level or at least try. They will appreciate it. Okay, some more observations in our next category, which is My Beautiful Mind, Thoughts and Memories. These are poems that take on a little more profundity. Maybe it's thinking about how hard the world is or how much we wish to improve it and maybe we can't or, or how the world, maybe it's more inward than that. Maybe it's just how short life is and how much we long for those who have died before us or those who are far away. Do still drops and drops. I would like to try to use it for rinsing this world. The wings of a butterfly. How many times fluttering over the roofed wall back and forth. Between our two lives is the vivid life of the cherry blossoms. The idea in that one is that two people haven't seen each other for a while, yet the cherry blossoms have continued. They've come and gone in the middle of those years. They are such important reminders of life for Basho and of time passing and the world. Huge in Japan, those cherry blossoms, and here in D.C. also. They're miraculous trees. Here's another one of Basho's. Many, many things come back to my mind when I see those cherry blossoms. That's Levi territory, isn't it? Memory is important. Triggers from nature can bring it back. Here's another one, very much like the Levi one. My mother and father are missed so much as I hear the voice of a pheasant. Another. The day is over with blossoms and sad now to see the dark silhouette of Asunaro trees. Again, that's maybe I should have put that in the painting one. Can imagine this chiaroscuro of a painting that would show that moment. Then there's nostalgia on a big scale. As he thinks about history or all those who've come before us. Only summer grass grows where ancient warriors used to dream. That's like Shelley's Ozymandias, but in compressed form. And here's one about a tragic general named uh, Yoshinaka. Yoshinaka perhaps saw this mountain when awakened. 
The moon looks sad. Oh, there's haiku about priests reflecting on their rituals from long ago. I haven't included those. The world is a sad place. We're all going to die just as billions of people have died before us. But that's where we're ending Basho's haiku. But it's not the end of our episode. It shouldn't be. It wouldn't be appropriate to end on that note because what Basho reminds us of is what it's like to live, to enjoy life, to appreciate our time. Reflecting on death and the people who've come before is a way of doing that. It's okay to feel sad and melancholy and nostalgic. It's okay to think of history and its sorrows. It's okay to grieve. That's all part of being human. And it brings into relief all those moments of joy and wonder that sparrows and fireflies and beautiful bridges under falling snow with mountains in the background can bring us to. Okay, so where does that leave us? Basho was centuries ago. What about haiku now? He was already getting a little tired of it sometimes, as we saw. Is the form exhausted? Nature plus insight? Can we still do that? Let me tell you a story about a man who came to talk to us when I started college. I have no idea how this happened or why exactly, but it was part of my first week at school, orientation week. We were invited into the living room of the resident heads, and a professor came in to speak to us. He was this grizzled old man with an eye patch, a mathematician, although he looked more like a pirate or a veteran, someone who, so, but mean, <laughs> fierce, someone who General Patton himself would have left alone. I'll slap soldiers left and right. Ooh, but not that dude. Life's too short to stir up whatever hornets are living in that skull. And so this guy gave us a pep talk of sorts. Welcome to the University of Chicago. But it was more like a, a growling, begrudging life advice talk. He was someone who saw the world a little differently. I don't know why he was sharing his thoughts with us. Maybe because he hated students and wanted to improve them. Or maybe his contract required that he show up for this thing. I don't know. He sat there holding court in a circle of 30 or so awkward 18-year-olds, anxious, uncertain, excited people. And he said, after he had talked for a while, he said, give me a number. And immediately we were all on edge. What? A number? What, what do you want a number for, sir? A big number? A little one? A, a smart one? Are we counting something here? What's the purpose of this? <laughs> it was sort of our, our mumblings. And he got impatient and finally said, come on, it's not hard. A number. And someone said, uh, 35? And he said, okay, give me another one. And some kid said, pi. And he nodded and he said, pi, okay, now another one. And somebody said, 2i. And he looked at us and he just shook his head and he said, I knew it. This happens every time. Three freaking numbers and we're already at 2i. Where are you going to go from there? Where are you going to go next? You're in this mode where you think you've got to be smart to show how smart you are. Or one thing is never enough. You were trying to give me a different answer, a complicated answer, because you thought that's what I wanted. Or you thought I was looking for something, and I wasn't. That was all coming from you. I just asked you to give me a number. And then he gave us 
an example of a different dialogue we could have had. Give me a number. One. All right, another number. Two. Okay, give me another number. Three. Oh, okay, come on. How about something different? Different kind of number. Neg one. And another one. Neg two. I think his point was you guys are kind of annoying because you're always trying to show off. And maybe that was one point. Maybe another point was something about authority and only giving what's necessary or what's required. Make authority ask you for what they want. Don't go out of your way to give them what they haven't asked for. You should have some restraint. Pace yourself. Save 2i for when you need it. But I also think of that dialogue when I think of haiku and trying too hard. The shift everyone wants to make is to complicate haiku. Okay, frog jumping into a pond, sound of water, we get it. So let me tell you instead, or in addition, about how the frog's legs evolved so he can jump like that, or how the wetlands are endangered, and we might have condos here instead of a pond soon, or how I saw the frog and it reminded me of green zigzags, or or it reminded me of a trip to France. The word frog puts Frenchmen in my mind. Ha ha, and I lost my luggage, and I should tell you all about my trip when I went to see the grand city of Paris. Maybe haiku in its pure form belongs to Basho, just that simple man traveling through Japan on those roads in that time. Maybe that's its use, to recreate that time only. Although, that kind of begs the question, what will people want 400 years from now? Won't they enjoy traveling back to meet us and our era, just as we enjoy traveling back to meet Basho in his? And if they do want to travel back, these future people, will they want to watch films and read novels? and surf the preserved internet, or will they want to meet us from a simplified, pared-down version, which they can connect with as simply as we can read Basho and see the mist in front of the mountain, or hear a bird singing while flying, or feel the feeling of being cold and warming oneself by a fire. Simplification. It's a powerful thing when we're crossing time and space. A novel, maybe the details of a novel, all those millions of details in a novel make it harder to connect across time and space. There's too much that's different. So maybe that's what you should do, you would-be writers. I know the world today will pay you more for your 100,000-word novel, but if you're writing for posterity, Maybe you should leave your great-great-great-great-grandchildren a hundred haiku instead. Don't count syllables. They won't care about that. But breathe life into your memories and your thoughts. Let those future generations into your existence. Let them see who you are by the simplest, purest descriptions. There's a lot Basho doesn't talk about. No television, obviously. No rockets or space travel. No aliens or Big Bang theories. No science fiction of any kind, really. But your life and your mind might have those things, and it's okay to write about them, just as your life might not be in Japan. The point is not to limit yourself to things Basho talked about or ideas he had, but to reduce your life, period, 
to follow Basho's example in reducing existence to its essence and writing about that, finding the essence, first of all, and presenting it with grace and good humor. You don't need to say, I have to write something more to show how smart I am because maybe writing something less will find a higher value, a greater power. Basho opened a window into that possibility. You can do it too. We all can. Give me a number. One. Another number. Two. Okay, something different. Neg one. And another different one. Neg two. No, something really different. Zero. Leave pi and two i for others. You and I can stick with one and two and three and four. Marvelous numbers. All of them. Wonders of this world. If you're taking the time to appreciate things, I mean, 2i is wondrous in one way. Square root of negative 1, okay. It's wonderful for you brainiacs, but by naming that, we didn't name 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. And just think how rich and powerful those numbers are. 1, 2, 3, and 4. Leaving them out, <laughs> leaving those numbers out, 4. I mean, come on, how useful are they? How important have they been? Leaving them out is like talking about life on this planet by talking about your favorite Belgian waffle maker and not talking about the sun or the sky or the wind. Sometimes the wonders scream for our attention by being so dazzling and so unique, and sometimes the wonders are with us every day in plain sight, biding their time, waiting to be discovered, waiting, hopefully, for you. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. Basho, what a super genius. He's not Tolstoy, he's not Proust, but he's as valuable to me as either of those two. Man, oh man, I'm glad we got there. It's a long road, this history of literature, but there are some very good stops along the way and some very good traveling companions. By that, I mean you, dear listeners. In case that wasn't clear, probably was clear, but just in case it wasn't, who else could I have meant? Other writers, I suppose, or my team of interns. But I did mean you, dear listeners, and you probably got that. I don't need to explain any of this, but it's, you know why I'm doing that? You know why I'm explaining? Even though this episode has already been kind of long, it doesn't mean anything to me. It's because I'm always a little sad to say goodbye. A little part of me dies every time I sign off. It's like those, those conversations that we have at the end of a phone call, at least in the Midwest. Okay, I'd better go. Yep, me too. Thanks for calling. No problem. Talk to you later. Yep, talk to you soon. Okay, take care now. You too. And thanks for calling. Yep, my pleasure. <laughs> we'll talk again. On and on. And sometimes if we're in a hurry, we have to start right away with the goodbyes. Hi, Aunt Carol. Hi. Well, I only have a few minutes. Oh, well then. You take care. You too. Thanks for calling. My pleasure. And we run out of time. Kind of like what I'm headed for here. Oh, parting is such sweet sorrow. It's not even very sweet. It's more like sorrowful sorrow. Pained sorrow. I die a little every time, but I will be here. What's left of me, that is. The part that hasn't died. 
next Monday with, I think, some Edward Gibbon. Speaking of dying, an empire died and he anatomized it. Not the, the rise, not the peak. His book was The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Where's the prequel, Mr. Gibbon? Boy, start at the end, kind of like Aunt Carol and I on the phone. Start with the goodbyes to make sure you cover those. It's the might not be the best way to live, but it's the safest. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.